Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, a novel by Susanna Clarke. Volume 1. Mr. Norrell. He hardly ever spoke of magic, and when he did, it was like a history lesson, and no one could bear to listen to him. Chapter 1. The Library at Hertfew. Autumn, 1806 to January, 1807. Some years ago there was, in the city of York, a society of magicians. They met upon the third Wednesday of every month, and read each other long, dull papers upon the history of magic. They were gentlemen magicians, which is to say, they never harmed anyone by magic, nor ever done anyone the slightest good. In fact, to own the truth, not one of these magicians had ever cast the smallest spell, nor by magic caused one leaf to tremble upon a tree, made one mote of dust to alter its course, or changed a single hair upon anyone's head. But, with this one minor reservation, they enjoyed a reputation as some of the wisest and most magical men in Yorkshire. A great magician has said of his profession that its practitioners must pound and rack their brains to make the least learning go in, but quarreling always comes very naturally to them, and the York magicians have proved the truth of this for a number of years. In the autumn of 1806, they received an addition in a gentleman called John Segundus. At the first meeting he attended, Mr. Segundus rose and addressed the society. He began by complimenting the gentlemen upon their distinguished history. He listed the many celebrated magicians and historians that had at one time or another belonged to the York Society. He hinted that it had been, it had been no small inducement to him in coming to York to know of the existence of such a society. Northern magicians, he reminded his audience, had always been better respected than southern ones. Mr. Segundus said that he had studied magic for many years, and knew the history of all the great magicians of long ago. He read the new publications upon the subject, and had even made a modest contribution to their number, but recently he had begun to why the great feats of magic that he read about remained on the pages of his book, and no, were no longer seen in the street or written about in the newspapers. Mr. Segundus wished to know, he said, why modern magicians were unable to work the magic they wrote about. In short, he wished to know why there was no more magic done in England. It was the most commonplace question in the world. It was the question which sooner or later every child in the kingdom asks, asks his governess or his schoolmaster or his parent. Yet the learned members of the York Society did not at all like hearing it asked, and the reason was this. They were no more able to answer it than anyone else. The president of the York Society, whose name was Dr. Foxcastle, turned to John Segundus and explained that the question was a wrong one. It presupposes that magicians have some sort of duty to do magic, which is clearly nonsense. You would not, I imagine, suggest that it is the task of the botanist to devise more flowers, or that the astronomer should labor to rearrange the stars. Magicians, Mr. Segundus, study magic which was done long ago. Why should anyone expect more? An elderly gentleman with faint blue eyes and faintly colored clothes, called either Hart or Hunt, Mr. Segundus could never quite catch the name, faintly said that it did not matter in the least whether anybody expected it or not. A gentleman could not do magic. Magic was what street sorcerers pretended to do in order to rob children of their pennies. Magic, in the practical sense, was much fallen off. It had low connections. It was the bosom companion of unshaven faces, gypsies, housebreakers, the frequenter of dingy rooms with yellow, dirty yellow curtains. Oh, no, a gentleman could not do magic. A gentleman might study the history of magic, nothing could be nobler, but he could not do any. The elderly gentleman looked with faint fatherly eyes at Mr. Segundus and said that he hoped Mr. Segundus had not been trying to cast spells. Mr. Segundus blushed.
But the famous magician's maxim held true. Two magicians, in this case Dr. Foxcastle, Foxcastle and Mr. Hunt or Hart, could not agree without two more thinking the exact opposite. Several of the gentlemen began to discover that they were entirely of Mr. Segundus's opinion, and that no one, and that no question in all of magical scholarship could be so important as this one. Chiefly among Mr. Segundus's supporters was a gentleman called Honeyfoot, a pleasant, friendly sort of man of fifty-five, with a red face and grey hair. As the exchanges became more bitter, and Dr. Foxcastle grew in sarcasm toward Mr. Segundus, Mr. Honeyfoot turned to him several times and whispered such comfort as, "'Do not mind them, sir. I am entirely of your opinion. And you are quite right, sir. Do not let them sway you. And you have hit upon it. Indeed you have, sir. It was want of the right question which held us back before. Now that you are come, we shall do great things.' Such kind words as these did not fail to find a grateful listener in John Segundus, whose shock showed clearly in his face. "'I fear that I have made myself disagreeable,' he whispered to Mr. Honeyfoot. "'That was not my intention. I had hoped for these gentlemen, gentlemen's good opinion.' At first Mr. Segundus was inclined to be downcast, but a particularly, particularly spiteful outburst from Dr. Foxcastle roused him to a little indignation. "'That gentleman,' said Dr. Foxcastle, fixing Mr. Segundus with a cold stare, "'seems determined that we should share in the unhappy fate of the Society of Manchester Magicians.' Mr. Segundus inclined his head toward Mr. Honeyfoot and said, "'I had not expected to find the magicians of Yorkshire quite so obstinate. "'If magic does not have friends in Yorkshire, where may we find them?' Mr. Honeyfoot's kindness to Mr. Segundus did not end with that evening." He invited Mr. Segundus to his house in High Petergate to eat a good dinner in company with Mrs. Honeyfoot and their th her three pretty daughters, which Mr. Segundus, who was a single gentleman and not rich, was glad to do. After dinner, Miss Honeyfoot played the pianoforte, and Miss Jane sang in Italian. The next day, Mrs. Honeyfoot told her husband that John Segundus was exactly what a gentleman should be, but she feared he would never profit by it, for it was not the fashion to be modest and quiet and kind-hearted. The intimacy between the two gentlemen advanced very rapidly. Soon Mr. Segundus was spending two or three evenings out of every seven at the house in High Petergate. Once there was quite a crowd of young people present, which naturally led to dancing. It was all very delightful, but often Mr. Honeyfoot and Mr. Segundus would slip away to discuss the one thing which really interested the both of them, why there was no more magic done in England. But talk as they would, often till two or three in the morning, they came no nearer an answer, and perhaps this was not so very remarkable. All sorts of magicians and antiquarians and scholars had been asking the same question for rather more than two hundred years. Mr. Honeyfoot was a tall, cheerful, smiling gentleman with a great deal of energy, who always liked to be doing or planning something, rarely thinking to inquire whether that something were to the purpose. The present task put him very much in mind of the great medieval magicians, who, whenever they had some seemingly impossible problem to solve, would ride away for a year and a day with only a fairy servant or two to guide them, and at the end of this time never failed to find the answer. Mr. Honeyfoot told Mr. Segundus that in his opinion they could not do better than to emulate these great men, some of whom had gone to the most retired parts of England and Scotland and Ireland, where magic was the strongest, while others had ridden out of this world entirely, and nowadays no one was quite quite clear about where they had gone or what they had done when they got there. Mr. Honeyfoot did not suppose going quite so far. Indeed, he did not wish to go very far at all, because it was winter and the roads were very shocking. Nevertheless, he was strongly persuaded that they should go somewhere and consult some one. He told Mr. Segundus that he thought they were both growing stale. The advantage of a fresh opinion would be immense.
but no destination, no object presented itself. Mr. Honeyfoot was in despair, and then he thought of the other magician. Some years before, the York Society had heard rumors that there was another magician in Yorkshire. This gentleman lived in a very retired part of the country where, it was said, he passed his days and nights studying rare magical texts in his wonderful library. Dr. Foxcastle had found out the other magician's name and where he might be found, and had written a polite letter inviting the other magician to become a member of the York Society. The other magician had written back, expressing his sense of the honor done him and his deep regret. He was quite unable, the long distance between York and Herfew Abbey, the indifferent roads, the work he could on no account neglect, etc., etc. The York magicians had all looked at the letter and expressed their doubts that anybody with such small handwriting could ever make a tolerable magician. Then, with some slight regret for the wonderful library they would never see, they had dismissed the other gentleman from their thoughts. But Mr. Honeyfoot said to Mr. Segundus that the importance of the question, why was there no more magic done in England, was such that it would be very wrong of them to neglect any opening. Who could say? The other magician's opinion might be worth having. And so he wrote a letter proposing that he and Mr. Segundus give themselves the satisfaction of waiting on the other magician on the third Tuesday after Christmas at half-past two. A reply came very promptly. Mr. Honeyfoot, with his customary good nature and good fellowship, immediately sent for Mr. Segundus and showed him the letter. The other magician wrote in his small handwriting that he would be very happy in the acquaintance, that this was enough. Mr. Honeyfoot was very well pleased and instantly strode off to tell Waters, the coachman, when he would be needed. Mr. Segundus was left alone in the letter, in the room with the letter in his hand. He read, I am, I confess, somewhat at a loss to account for the sudden honor done me. It is scarcely conceivable that the magicians of York, with all the happiness of each other's society, and the incalculable benefit of each other's wisdom, should feel any necessity to consult a solitary scholar such as myself. There was an air of subtle sarcasm about the letter. The writer seemed to mock Mr. Honeyfoot with every word. Mr. Segundus was glad to reflect that Mr. Honeyfoot could have scarcely have noticed or he would not have gone with such elated spirits to speak to Waters. It was such a very unfriendly letter that Mr. Segundus found that all his desire to look upon the other magician had quite evaporated. Well, no matter, he thought. I must go, because Mr. Honeyfoot wishes it. And what, after all, is the worst that can happen? We will see him and be disappointed, and that will be the end of it. The day of the visit was preceded by stormy weather. Rain had made long, ragged pools in the bare brown fields. Wet roofs were like stone-cold mirrors. And Mr. Honeyfoot's post-chase traveled through a world that seemed to contain a much higher proportion of chill gray sky and a much smaller one of solid, comfortable earth than was usually the case. Ever since the first evening, Mr. Segundus had been intending to ask Mr. Honeyfoot about the learned society of magicians of Manchester, which Dr. Foxcastle had mentioned. He did so now. It was a society of quite recent foundation, said Mr. Honeyfoot, and its members were clergy of the poorer sort, respectable ex-tradesmen, apothecaries, lawyers, retired mill-owners who had gotten up a little Latin and so forth, such people as might be termed half-gentlemen. I believe Dr. Foxcastle was glad when they disbanded. He does not think that people of that sort have any business becoming magicians. And yet, as you know, there were several clever men among them. They began, as you did, with the aim of bringing back practical magic into the world. They were practical men and wished to apply the principles of reason and science to magic as they had done to the manufacturing arts. They called it rational thermaturgy. When it did not work, they became discouraged. Well, they cannot be blamed for that. 
but they let their disillusionment lead them into all sorts of difficulties. They began to think that there was not now, nor had there ever been magic in the world. They said that all eight magicians were all deceivers, or were themselves deceived, and that the Raven King was an invention of the northern English to keep themselves from the tyranny of the south, being north countrymen themselves, they had some sympathy for that. Oh, their arguments were very ingenious. I forget how they explained fairies. They disbanded, as I told you, and one of them, whose name was Aubrey, I think, meant to write it all down and publish it. But when it came to the point, he found that a sort of fixed melancholy had settled on him, and he was not able to rouse himself enough to begin. Poor gentleman, said Mr. Segundus. Perhaps it is the age. It is not an age for magic or scholarship, is it, sir? Trademen's po tradesmen prosper, sailors, politicians, but not magicians. Our time has passed, he thought for a moment. Three years ago, he said, I was in London, and I met with a street magician, a vagabonding, yellow-curtained sort of fellow with a strange disfiguration. This man persuaded me to part with quite a high sum of money, in return for which he promised to tell me a great secret. When I paid him the money, he told me that one day magic would be restored to England by two magicians. Now I do not at all believe in prophecies, yet it is thinking of what he said that has determined me to discover the truth of our fallen state. Is that not strange? You are entirely right. Prophecies are great nonsense, said Mr. Honeyfoot, laughing. And then, as if struck by a thought, he said, We are two magicians. Honeyfoot and Segundus, he said, trying it out, as if thinking how it would look in newspapers and history books. Honeyfoot and Segundus. It sounds very well. Mr. Segundus shook his head. That the fellow knew my profession, it was only to be expected that he, he should pretend that, to me that I was one of the two men. But in the end he told me quite plainly that I was not. At first it seemed as if he was not sure of it. There was something about me. He made me write down my name and looked at it a good long while. I expect he could see there was no more money to be got out of you, said Mr. Honeyfoot. Hertfew Abbey was some fourteen miles northwest of York. The antiquity it was all in the name. There had been an abbey, but that was long ago. The present house had been built in the reign of Anne. It was very handsome and square and solid-looking, in a fine park full of ghostly-looking wet trees, for the day was becoming rather misty. A river, called the Hurt, ran through the park, and a fine classical-looking bridge led across it. The other magician, whose name was Norrell, was in the hall to receive his guests. He was small, like his handwriting, and his voice when he welcomed and hurt few was rather quiet, as if he were not used to speaking his thoughts out loud. Mr. Honeyfoot, who was a little deaf, did not catch what he said. I get old, sir, a common failing. I hope you will bear with me. Mr. Norrell led his guests to a handsome drawing-room with a good fire burning in the hearth. No candles had been lit. Two fine windows gave plenty of light to see by, although it was sort of a grey light and not at all cheerful. Yet... The idea of a second fire, or candles, burning somewhere in the room kept occurring to Mr. Segundus, so that he continually turned in his chair and looked about him to discover where they might be. But there was never anything, perhaps only a mirror or an antique clock. Mr. Norrell said that he had read Mr. Segundus's account of the careers of Martin Pale's fairy servants. A creditable, creditable piece of work, sir, but you left out Master Fallowthought. A very minor spirit, certainly, whose usefulness to the great pale was questionable. Nevertheless, your little history was incomplete without him. There was a pause. A fairy spirit named Falvathod, sir, said Mr. Segundus. I, that is, that is to say, I never heard of any such creature in this world or any other. Mr. Norrell smiled for the first time, but it was an inward sort of smile. 
Of course, he said, I am forgetting. It is all in Hogarth's and Pickle's history of their dealings with Master Fallowthought, which you could have scarcely read. I congratulate you. They were an unsavory pair, more criminal than magical. The less one knows of them, the better. Ah, sir, said cried Mr. Honeyfoot, suspecting that Mr. Norrell was speaking of one of his books. We hear marvelous things about your library. All the magicians in Yorkshire fell into great fits of jealousy when they heard the great number of books you had got. Indeed, said Mr. Norrell coldly. You surprise me. I had no idea my affairs were so commonly known. Hmm. I expected his thoroughgood, he said thoughtfully, naming a man who sold books and curiosities in the coffee-yard in York. Childermas has warned me several times that thoroughgood is quite a chatterer. Mr. Honeyfoot did not understand this. If he had such quantities of magical books, he would love to talk of them, be complimented on them, and have them admired, and he could not believe that Mr. Norrell was not the same. Meaning, therefore, to be kind, and set Mr. Norrell at his ease, for he had taken it into his head that the gentleman was shy, he persisted. Might I permitted, be permitted to express a wish, sir, that we might see your wonderful library? Mr. Segundus was certain Mr. Norrell would refuse, but instead Mr. Norrell regarded Lee steadily for some moments. He had small blue eyes and seemed to peep out at them from some secret place inside himself, and then, almost graciously, he granted Mr. Honeyfoot's request. Mr. Honeyfoot was all gratitude, happily in the belief that he had pleased Mr. Norrell as much as himself. Mr. Norrell led the other two gentlemen along a passage, a very ordinary passage, thought Mr. Segundus, panelled and floored with well-polished oak and smelling of beeswax. Then there was a staircase, or perhaps only two or three four, or four steps, and then another passage where the air was somewhat colder and the floor was good York stone, all entirely unremarkable. Unless this second passage had come before the staircase or the steps, or had there in truth been a staircase at all? Mr. Segundus was one of those happy gentlemen who can always say whether they face north or south, east or west. It was not a talent he took any particular pride in. It was as natural to him as knowing that his head still stood upon his shoulders. But in Mr. Norrell's house his gift deserted him. He could never afterwards picture the sequence of passageways and rooms through which they had passed, nor quite decide how long they had taken to reach the library. And he could not tell the direction. It seemed to him as if to Mr. Norrell had discovered some fifth point of the compass, not east, nor south, nor west, nor north, but somewhere quite different, and this was the direction in which he led them. Mr. Honeyfoot, on the other hand, did not appear to notice anything odd. The library was perhaps a little smaller than the drawing-room they had just quitted. There was a noble fire in the hearth, and all was comfort and quiet. Yet once again the light within the room did not seem to accord with the t three tall twelve-paned windows, so that once again Mr. Segundus was made uncomfortable by a persistent feeling that there ought to have been other candles in the room, other windows, or another fire to account for the light. What windows there were looked out upon a wide expanse of dusky English rain, so that Mr. Segundus could not make out the view nor guess where in the house they stood. The room was not empty. There was a man sitting at a table who rose as they entered, whom Mr. Norrell briefly declared to be Childermas, Childermas, his man of business. Mr. Honeyfoot and Mr. Segundas, being magicians themselves, had not needed to be told that the library of Hertfew Abbey was dearer to its possessor than all his other riches, and they were not surprised to discover that Mr. Norrell had constructed a beautiful jewel-box to house his heart's treasure. The bookcases which lined the walls of the room were built of English woods and resembled Gothic arches laden with carvings. There were carvings of leaves, dried and twisted leaves, as if the season the artist had intended to represent were autumn. 
Carvings of intertwining roots and branches, carvings of berry and ivy, all wonderfully done. But the wonder of the bookcases was nothing to the wonder of the books. The first thing a student of magic learns is that there are books about magic and books of magic. And the second thing he learns is that a perfectly respectable example of the former may be had for two or three guineas at a good bookseller, and that the value of the latter is above rubies. The collection of the York Society was reckoned very fine, almost remarkable. Among its many volumes were five works written between 1550 and 1700, and which might reasonably be claimed as books of magic, though one was no more than a couple of ragged pages. Books of magic are rare, and neither Mr. Segundus nor Mr. Honeyfoot had ever seen more than two or three in a private library. At Hertfew, all the walls were lined with bookshelves, and all the shelves were filled with books, and the books were all, or almost all, old books, books of magic. Oh, to be sure, many had clean modern bindings, but clearly these were volumes which Mr. Norrell had rebound, he favored, it seemed plain calf, with the title stamped in neat silver capitals. But many had bindings that were old, 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 with crumbling spines and corners. Mr. Segundus glanced at the spines of the books on the nearby shelf. The first tell he read was how to put questions into the dark and understand its answers. A foolish work, said Mr. Norrell. Mr. Segundus stared. He had not known his host was so close by. Mr. Norrell continued, I would advise you not to waste a moment's thought upon it. So Mr. Segundus looked at the next book, which was Balasius's Instructions. "'You know Balasius, I dare say,' asked Mr. Norrell. "'Only by reputation,' said Mr. Segundus. "'I have often heard that he held the key to a good many things, "'but I have also heard, indeed, all the authorities agree "'that every copy of the instructions was destroyed long ago, "'and yet here it is. Why, sir, it is extraordinary. It is wonderful.' "'You expect a great deal of Balasius,' remarked Norrell, "'and once upon a time I was entirely of your mind.' I remember that for many months I devoted eight hours out of every twenty-four to studying his work, a compliment, I may say, that I have never paid any other author. But ultimately he is disappointing. He is mystical where he ought to be intelligible, and intelligible where he ought to be obscure. There are some things which I have, which have no business being put into books for all the world to read. For myself I no longer have any great, very great opinion of Blasius. Here is a book I never even heard of, sir, said Mr. Segundus. The Excellences of Christo-Judaic Magic? What can you tell me of this? Ha! cried Mr. Norrell. It dates from the seventeenth century, but I have no great opinion of it. Its author was a liar, a drunkard, an adulterer, and a rogue. I am glad he has been so completely forgot. It seemed that it was not only live magicians which Mr. Norrell despised. He had taken the measure of all the dead ones, too, and found them wanting. Mr. Honeyfoot, meanwhile, his hands in the air like a Methodist praising God, was rapidly, walking rapidly from bookcase to bookcase. He could scarcely stop long enough to read the title of one book before his eye was caught by another on the other side of the room. Oh, Mr. Norrell, he cried, such a quantity of books. Surely we shall find the answers to all our questions here. I doubt it, sir, said Mr. was Mr. Norrell's dry reply. The man of business gave a short laugh, laughter which was clearly directed at Mr. Honeyfoot, yet Mr. Norrell did not reprimand him either by look or word, and Mr. Segundus wondered what sort of business it could be that Mr. Norrell entrusted to this person. With his long hair as ragged as rain and black as thunder, he would have looked quite at home upon a windswept moor, or lurking some pitch-black alleyway, or perhaps in a novel by Mrs. Radcliffe. Mr. Segundus took down the instructions of Jacques Balasius, and despite Mr. Norrell's poor opinion, poor opinion of it, instantly hit upon two extraordinary passages. 
Then, conscious of the time passing and of the queer, dark eye of the man of business upon him, he opened the excellences of Christo-Judeo magic. This was not, as he had supposed, a printed book, but a manuscript scribbled down very hurriedly upon the backs of all kinds of bits of paper, most of them old alehouse bills. Here Mr. Segundus read of wonderful adventures. The seventeenth-century magician had used his scanty magic to battle against great and powerful enemies, battles which no human magician ought to have attempted. He had scribbled down the history of his patchwork victories just as those enemies were closing around him. The author had known very well that, as he wrote, time was running up for him, and death was the best that he could hope for. The room was becoming darker. The antique scrawl was growing dim on the page. Two footmen came into the room and watched by the unbusiness-like man of business lit candles, drew window curtains, and heaped fresh coals upon the fire. Mr. Segundus thought it best to remind Mr. Honeyfoot that they had not yet explained to Mr. Norrell the reason for their visit. As they were leaving the library, Mr. Segundus noticed something he thought odd. A chair was drawn up by the fire, and by the chair stood a little book. Upon the table lay the boards and leather bindings of a very old book, a pair of scissors, and a strong, cruel-looking knife, such as a gardener might use for pruning. But the pages of the book were nowhere to be seen. Perhaps, thought Mr. Secundus, he sent them to be bound anew. If the old bindings still look strong, and why should Mr. Norrell trouble himself to remove the pages and risk damaging them? A skilled bookbinder was the proper person to do such work. When they were seating, seated in the drawing-room again, Mr. Honeyfoot addressed Mr. Norrell. "'What I have seen here today, sir, convinces me that you are the best person to help us. Mr. Segundus are of the opinion that the modern magicians, are, modern magicians are on the wrong path. They waste their energies upon trifles. Do you not agree, sir?' "'Oh, certainly,' said Mr. Norrell. "'Our question,' continued Mr. Honeyfoot, "'is why magic has fallen from its once great state in our great nation.' "'Our question is, sir, why is no more magic being done in England?' Mr. Norrell's small blue eyes grew harder and brighter, and his lips tightened as if he were seeking to suppress a great and secret delight within him. It was if, thought Mr. Secundus, he had waited a long time for someone to ask him this question, and he had had his answer ready for years. Mr. Norrell said, "'I cannot help you with your question, sir, for I do not understand it. It is a wrong question, sir.' Magic is not ended in England. I myself am quite a tolerable practical magician. Wow, I hope I get a little more emotion in my voice the next time I read, uh, when I read chapter two. I guess then we'll take some practice. Uh, some notes on the text. Uh, besides introducing some central and minor characters, we begin to see some themes that will be, be uh, with us throughout the book. First, I have to note the mirrors that are uh, created by the wet roof, roofs uh, on Mr. Segundus and Mr. Honeyfoot's trip out to Hurtview, where the, um, the the earth, I mean, the, it seems to contain a great deal more sky than there was earth, and there's uh, the wet roofs. Um, are like mirrors, it says in the text. And mirrors are become a central image throughout the book, and so just notice that. And uh, also, I found it interesting, I just picked this up this time, I wonder, that Mr. Norrell's library is decorated with autumn themes, and that will contrast with the library we'll see later on. Uh, we also get some of the footnotes that I found so charming and interesting and I love so much, but I decided not to read them because I figured it would it would just distract uh, the listener too much to for me to suddenly veer off into a footnote and when you're reading you can you can read the footnote and then go back to your place in the text and continue reading without disrupting your flow but you can't really do that in an audiobook so I decided just not to read the footnotes and I'll just mention them at the end 
Uh, some footnotes that denote, though, Jonathan Strange gets quoted and noted in a footnote, like within the first two paragraphs. And uh, the term aurate magician gets defined as ancient magicians from the golden age of practicing magicians. And this term, aurate magicians, uh, from uh, the Latin for gold, AU, or the uh, yeah, Latin for gold, uh, gets used, the aurate magician gets used frequently throughout the book. And then we also get a couple of charming little side tales uh, from the books Mr. Segundus picks up from the library. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, please uh, see my other chapters. I'm not sure when I'll have the next ones up, but uh, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave me a comment so I know. Thanks. <laughs>